All right, well, good morning, everybody. It's good to be with you again. Today, what we're up to is we are continuing in our first series of this year, which is also our theme uh, for the year ahead, for 2024, and it's called Together on Purpose. That's our big idea for this year, Together on Purpose. And to be more specific, the big idea is that it is not enough, right, to simply enjoy hanging out together as a church family. Um, although being able to do that turns out to be, like, um, like unfortunately, quite rare um, and wonderful when you've got it. And I think we do have that here. People here tend to like seeing each other, which is great. But at the same time, I think we need to remain focused as a community on why it would be that God would draw people like us into groups like this one in the first place. And so to do that work, trying to figure out what are we to get, what is the purpose we are together for, um, to do that work, we're spending each of the four weeks, at least in this initial series, looking at, and bear with me, I was an English teacher once, and this is a very English teacher, teacher two sentences. <laughs> All right, I'm going to start over. To do that work, we're spending each of the four weeks in this series looking at whose sake the church benefits. Who's, that's an odd phrase. I assure you it is grammatically correct, but... <laughs> Perhaps to make it make a little bit more sense, I'll put it like this. Last week, what we did is we explored what the community of a local church does for God's sake. What does the church do for God's sake? Why does God choose to need us, to need a body like revolution in the first place? This isn't something he has to do. And what we learned last week was that God chooses the church because it is his nature to show mercy to his people, and it is his plan to knit people together into this living and active body of his own for the sake of us, as his parts of his body, of using us as his heart and his hands in the world. And then thirdly, it is his pleasure, it is his delight to share his hopes and his work with his children, and that, that includes us. So the church exists, in a sense, for God's sake because he loves sharing himself wholly and transformationally with his people. Now, if you are sitting there and thinking one of two thoughts, either one, that sounds like five sermons and not one sermon, or two, that it just sounds complicated, I want you to know you're not alone. This past week, my dear friend Paul Hegan, who's here, was quick to point out to me that this week, or that this last Sunday's sermon violated one of the key rules of speech writing, which is make one point four ways, not four points one way, right? <laughs> and I, of course, was quick to point out to Paul that it was a sermon, so I didn't make four points, I made three points, that's how sermons work. But the lesson, I think, still stands, and this week we're going to try to behave a little bit better. And so our question for this week is... What does a local church do for your sake? What does the local church do for your sake? Which, of course, is a way of asking, why are you here? And there really is, I think, just one answer, which we can make four or three ways. And that is, I think we're here because we know, we have all learned at one point or another, that we cannot make it on our own. We can't make it on our own. We can't live well enough on our own, and we can't get far enough on our own, and we can't love deeply enough without help. And even more than that, without B. 
being together with other people. So that's our structure today. Are these three ways of making one point really true? And do they resonate in your hearts this morning as deeply as they resonate in mine? So we're going to look at those. The first reason why I've learned that I can't make it on my own is because I can't live well enough on my own. I can't live well enough on my own. When I say that, I want to be clear about a few things. Number one, I'm not trying to be self-deprecating. And I'm also not just talking about the pitfalls of sin that we all get stuck in throughout our lives, which is I think how we often think about this. We can't live well enough on our own because we make mistakes. And it's true. It is true that you and I make moral mistakes, right? That we are unkind to other people. We're deceitful when it serves our self-interest. We get mired in addictions, right? From alcohol to drugs to overworking to lust to laziness to greed and on and on and on and on. And that the result of those addictions, the result of those failures is that we become numb, right? First to God and then numb to other people and then finally even numb to ourselves. And most of us, if we've been in church for any period of time, have heard sermons that have the purpose of trying to pierce that numbness and remind us of these like spoiling things underneath our outer surfaces. And the go-to verse from the Bible in those sermons, if you've heard them before, is usually a verse from Romans 3 when Paul writes this. He writes, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. You've heard this, I'm imagining. You sin, I sin, we all have sinned, we all fall short. There ought not to be a person in this room or any other room who stands up to deny that they've ever made a mistake. But... When I'm up here to talk about how I can't live well enough on my own, what I actually mean is not that I've made mistakes. What I actually mean is that I have learned over the course of my life that even my best efforts aren't enough. It's not about the mistakes I made. It's about the limitations of when I'm doing my best. I'm not even thinking about my bad days, right? I can make excuses for those when I'm selfish or cruel. I'm thinking about my good days when my heart is warm and I wake up happy and alert and like grateful to be alive. They're rare, right? But I've had those days. For me personally, when I think about my good days where I'm not sinning or whatever, I, I think about a day when I'm camping. And I love camping. I talk about it all the time. But one of the reasons I love it is because on a camping day, all I have to do in the whole world is just wake up, like drink coffee, and then take a walk with people. How bad can it get, right? How many things can I get wrong on a day where my job is just walk from place to place? Because on those days, right, I'm not being tempted to do some kind of obviously bad thing. And I can see now, I can see now that messing, or that rather not messing up, isn't the same thing as what I'm actually tasked with doing, which is living out the full glory of God. So the claim here is that we're to live well enough. But what does that mean on a good day, right? Those days where I'm not tempted to look at a bad thing or be mean to somebody or ignore somebody I'm supposed to care about. When I'm on a hike with a friend, I, would, I should be asking these questions, right? Am I being as attentive to that person as God would be? 
am I as tuned to the world that I'm walking in as God would be? Am I as kind to my body on a day when I'm hiking as God would want me to be? Am I as in love with like the trees and the sky and the squirrels as God is? Because that seems like the standard that I'm supposed to be hitting. And if you're sitting there thinking like, Kenny, that seems a bit unrealistic. You're right. That's the whole point. It is unrealistic. But that's not because there is a limit to how much the world that I am in deserves to be loved. It's unrealistic because there is a limit to my capacity to love it. There's a limit to how much I can do on my own to pay attention to and care for creation. All this is a little complicated maybe, but what I'm getting at is that you can avoid sin, at least most of the time, by developing your willpower. That is a thing people can learn to do. But you cannot attain the full glory of God on your own. That's not a thing that you can make yourself do. So what's the solution to this problem? Well, the solution, I think, flows out from discovering our big point for today, which is that you're not supposed to be alone in the woods or any other place. Here's the thing about those days in the woods with a friend, right? There will absolutely be moments when I am distracted by something and I become disconnected from who and what God wants me to be in any given day. I will, despite my best efforts, like miss out on a cloud or a squirrel or two, right? John's laughing because you've been there. How many, what's your squirrel hit percentage? If you're paying attention, about 10%. That's probably where I'm at. Ah, and you walk through, there have been seasons of your life where you walk through the woods paying attention on purpose. That's your job. You're still not getting it quite right enough. I need help from my friends. Right. Because, of course, like, my friend, the thing about walking with somebody else is my friend might see the stuff that I don't. And if I have lots of friends, then our attention to the world will be even greater. So now let's, like, bring this weird hiking scenario back to the everyday world. The reality is I cannot love my neighbor as well as my neighbor deserves to be loved, which is to say as much as God loves my neighbor. But what if Meredith is trying to love my neighbor too? And what if my kids are being raised to love my neighbor? And what if other neighbors in the neighborhood are also trying to love our neighbor? When we choose community, we are accepting the limits of ourselves, and we are embracing what God can do through all of us together. Does that make sense? I feel like I think, I think it would. That verse from Romans that we read a moment ago is just an excerpt, right, from a larger sentence that we don't read as often. And that sentence goes like this. There is no difference between Jew and Gentile, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. So look at community in this verse. Because we have all fallen short, there is no difference between any of us. And God's grace, which is freely poured out, more easily covers all of us. 
What Jesus has done for us works more perfectly, in other words, when we're together, when we're all on the same level, when we're all in the same place. Which I think is a way of saying that you cannot live well enough on your own, and also you're not meant to be trying to live well enough on your own. So that's like the first way that our limits can be exposed this morning. Then what's the second? Three points. You know they're coming. We're on point two if you're taking notes. Nobody does that anymore, but I wish you did. Oh, <laughs> I'm all, all right. Never mind. Okay. All of you do it. All right. All right. Point two. Point two. I should write that in here. I don't do that. All right. We can't make it on our own because the second point is that we can't get far enough on our own. We can't get far enough on our own. What I'm getting at here is growth, both spiritual and personal growth. And I think in many ways, this is actually the trickiest of our points this morning, in large part because we all swim in self-centered waters as Americans, right? We are bread consumers. And that means that we see institutions like the church or others. And it means we often also see people as service providers who exist to help meet our needs. That's our wiring. And there's an obvious problem with seeing people or institutions like the church as a service provider. Right? And there are actually two. But the first is that thinking of a leader or a pastor or a coach as somebody whose purpose is to help you grow and improve leads you further away from seeing that person and treating that person as God sees and treats them. Which is to say as a full and co-equal human being with you. You tend to look at people for what they can give you for your journey. And not recognize that they exist and are on their own journeys as well. And in fact, you're on a journey together. So that's problem one. I imagine, to give this like some tangibility, I imagine the most of you can remember the first time in your life when it genuinely shocked you to learn that your elementary school teacher didn't like live under the desk in your classroom. <laughs> you like, saw them at the grocery store or the pumpkin patch or whatever, and you're like, that's not where you belong. And the reason is because you're part of an institution and part of a culture that equips you and trains and like leads you to see those people as like what they do for you and not as full people on their own. But there's another problem here that I think is even more insidious than the first problem, and that is that seeing our growth, spiritual or otherwise, as something that we can purchase or something that we can procure by using services other people provide also tricks us into thinking that we're the ones educating ourselves. That because we can buy it, because we can go to the place where we get it, it's like us. I'm, I'm, this is me self-actualizing. I learned things from other people, from me. One of my very favorite words in the English language is obfuscation, which I didn't want to put on the slide, but Dante insisted, right? So, <laughs> and give the definition. Never mind. I was going to ask, do you know what it means, the script says? You do now. <laughs> It means to hide or conceal the meaning of something. And the reason that I love this word so much is because it is a word that does the very thing that it's describing. No one uses the word obfuscate, and it is bizarre, right? Obfuscate sounds meaningless. But when we think of growth as something that we pursue or that we acquire from other people or services through study or through effort alone, I would argue that we are obfuscating the essential truth that we are incomplete, 
and we need outside help to become more fully ourselves. When you were a baby, you didn't have this same problem. On some level, when you were a baby, you knew that you didn't know everything that needed to be known, and you began to learn things like how to smile, or how to eat, or how to walk, or how to speak by imitating the people around you who seemed to know more than you and who you trusted. Your maturity as a little baby, your growth, wasn't something that you believed, or you're like, I'm doing this. I am like becoming a whole human on my own with no outside help. You grew instead through the investment of other people. But at some point along the way, you and I and everybody else, we fell for this lie that becoming mature is all about getting to a point where you no longer need anybody else's help, where you're self-sufficient. And that discovery of your self-sufficiency is like the goal of your life was a trick that you fell for and that I fell for and we've all fallen for. Because the truth of the matter is this, that becoming mature is actually about learning to reinvest what has been invested in you. That's maturity. Learning to reinvest the things that have been invested in you. We discussed this verse last week, but it bears repeating here. It's from Ephesians. God granted that some are apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until all of us come to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to maturity, to the measure of the full stature of Christ. The aim here is maturity which Paul describes as measuring the full stature of Christ. And by full stature, what Paul means is that the ultimate goal of Christians is to be people, is to, in fact, to be people who are what their name suggests, people who live after the full example of Jesus, to be Christ-like, to be Christian, right? To be people who measure up to him. But how does that maturity develop in this passage? And who does that include? Because the beginning of this passage lists like multiple roles that different people are called to fill in order to help others in the community of the church grow. And those roles include apostles and prophets and evangelists and pastors and teachers. And then in other New Testament writings, we see more jobs added to this list, including things like carpenters and cooks and caretakers and nurses and financial donors and missionaries and musicians and all sorts of other roles. And so the picture then isn't centered on the lone and motivated student Right, who is acquiring all of the lessons and listening to all of the sermons until they achieve a personal and private holiness. That isn't what the early church is focused on, trying to cultivate like, this army of like, personal, holy individuals. Instead, the picture is centered on this united body of servants who work together to add to each person in the community what they might have and that person might lack. There is no protagonist in the church for whom the church exists to help grow. And it definitely isn't you. The church isn't here for you alone. 
What we see is that the church is a community of growers, each leaning into what makes them distinct and knowledgeable, and then sharing their gifts with everybody else. To go back to that phrase, becoming mature is about learning to reinvest what has been invested in you, not about achieving some personal like self-actualization or holiness. So when I say that I can't get far enough on my own, what I am trying to say is that no amount of Bible study, no amount of wisdom, no amount of personal devotion to prayer, no amount of worship in my heart will ever make me fully mature as a Christ follower. Because at the heart of the Jesus story is a story about a God who having everything still chooses to become nothing so that he might share himself with other people. I would contend that the church exists for your sake so that you might have one refuge in a world that preaches individualism where true collectivism can be felt and seen in your life. Which means, of course, that we have to be different if we're going to provide that refuge for one another. So we have this obligation, I think, together to refuse to allow individualism to creep into our church's attitude about what it means to be here or to learn here or to grow here. This isn't a place for your self-actualization. It is a place for your participation. And then we have an opportunity as individuals to grow, not through what we can acquire or take from each other, but by learning to freely offer whatever it is that we have to give. We're not here to take, we're here to share. All right, that was two. Two points. I can't go it alone because I can't live well enough on my own. And I can't go it alone because I can't become mature enough on my own. I also can't keep going it alone because I can't love deeply enough on my own. I need God's help to do this, and I need your help to do this too. So, let's try to articulate the problem. Yesterday, I turned 42. Congratulations. <laughs> thank you, thank you. <laughs> I feel terrible about it. Why are you confessing? <coughs> oh, my. Woo-hoo, 42. Woo, 42, what an age, yes. All right. Anyways, the point of just saying that was just to get around to saying that I have lived long enough now to know that Paul was in fact right when he wrote to the Corinthian church. If I speak in the tongues of humans and of angels but do not have love, I am a noisy gong or clanging cymbal. Accomplishing everything in the world without either experiencing the joy of loving others or feeling the comfort of feeling loved and being loved myself. Accomplishing everything without those two things is meaningless. I long, at 42, to be loved and to love. And I feel the need for this deeply now in my bones. And I want even more of it than I have been lucky enough to find already in this life. And I am confident that this is something that you know too. That love is what gives us purpose, It gives us safety, it gives us joy and responsibility to other people, 
and ultimately it brings us to unity with each other. You know how much you need love. I don't need to preach it to you. I think you know that it's probably the only thing that you truly need. But I, like many of you, have been raised in evangelical churches and for all that those churches have done right for me in my life and instilling faith in me and in teaching me about God's heart, one place that they have all failed is in having the courage to tell me something that the Bible does its best to try to tell me before it even gets to the second page. And it is this, that God's love isn't enough. There's a long dramatic pause here filled with static. I'm glad none of you are heading for the exit. So hear me out. I want you to listen to this passage from Genesis 2. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to till it and keep it. But then the Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper as his partner. So out of the ground, the Lord God formed every animal of the field and every bird of the air and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all cattle and to the birds of the air and to every animal of the field. But for the man that was not found, a helper is his partner. I'm going to pause just to help you see. Like God is looking for a partner for his human and he tries everything in creation. Every animal there is. And he does the other thing that most of us are so good at doing, which is he gives him a job to do and asks him to find purpose in his work. And that doesn't do the trick either. And so because God loves him, so the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and he slept, and he took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh, and the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man he made into a woman and brought her to the man. And then the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. This one shall be called woman for out of man. This one was taken. So what is happening here in this story? In this story, the first man seems to have everything that we might think we need if we're supposed to be doing life alone, which is intimacy with God, profound intimacy, one-on-one focused relationship with God. He has purpose and work and creation. He has company in the animals and those squirrels and in the clouds and the trees. He has all that stuff. But in the end, it is God who says it is not good that the man should be alone. Thinking certainly of himself. God's love gives us life and work and grounds for worship. But the fullness of what God means for us to be requires more than his love for us. It requires Empathy. We need other people if we are going to fully experience what it means to be known to ourselves. To love not just creation broadly, which we can do alone, or to love God gratefully, which we can do alone, but to learn how to love other human beings deeply. And what God What God does, I got confused because I got excited. That's why I try not to do that. Ultimately, what God wants for us is to fully share his heart. 
That's what we're here for, to share God's heart. He wants things in the world, people in the world who can love and be like him and fully know and experience what it's like to be like him. But if we're going to share our heart, then we have to recognize that God's heart swells up when he sees people that he has made. And our hearts thus need to swell up when we see people that God has made. But that requires people other than ourselves. We cannot fully imitate our loving God. We can't fully even experience God's love for us if we don't have each other. It's necessary for the thing to be good. And so the point this morning is that we can't make it on our own. To live well enough, we need other people. To grow enough and to learn enough in life, we need other people. And to love as deeply as we have been made to love, we need each other. And the Christian community of a church exists to share and to explore and to cherish these discoveries. And so the challenge for us as we wrap up on a morning like this one is to ask ourselves, am I actually ready to believe in that? Am I ready to stop trying to make it by myself? Is there a community in my life where I can feel safe enough to let my guard down, to let myself be known by other people, and to stop striving for my independence? Is there such a community of people where I can do that? And the thing is, I can't answer that question for you. It is my most sincere prayer, truly my most sincere and constant prayer, that revolution is a place and that we are people that are like that for you. I know we want to be that kind of a group of people. But here's the thing. Maybe you're on the other side of this and you're already a part of this church, already part of this community. And you have a job today too, and your job is to give up. To ask, where am I still clinging to a desire to go alone? What fears do I need to confront so that I can trust other people more? Because that's what keeps you from it. So what's the fear that's keeping you from it? What questions do I still have about God, and who can I share those questions with? We have been called together by God for your sake. Letting go and trusting each other is incredibly hard, but letting go and trusting each other is also holy. So may we remember that God first embraced us by choosing to be with us, and may we this week learn to echo that embrace by choosing to be with one another. Because we can't make it. I'm going to pray for us and we're going to receive communion, an amazing opportunity to think about what it means to be together. And then we're going to close in worship.